0: as is written in isaiah the prophet behold i send my messenger before thy face who shall prepare thy way the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark one, two three is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way we live our lives? How many of us can say we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestled alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what are these texts written over two thousand years ago? have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Batsoulis, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the Scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our lives, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. My name is Nick Botsolos, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me as we carry on with our walk through the Acts of the Apostles, starting with chapter 2. So, a brief overview of where we've been Last week, we began Acts, which is the second volume of St. Luke's works. And during the first chapter, we saw St. Luke do an overview of Christ's ministry and a retelling of the ascension. And after the ascension happened, when Christ ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, as was talked about and prefigured over and over again through his gospel account, we saw that the apostles went back to the upper room where they were staying in Jerusalem. And while they were there, Peter stood up in the midst of all of them and proclaimed that they had to find a replacement for Judas because Judas had since committed suicide. So in replacing Judas, they cast lots. So again, they didn't take it to a vote. This wasn't a demographic democratic thing. Rather, this was something that they put in the hands of God, the decision. And Matthias was chosen to be the new 12th apostle. So that's kind of where we left off. And this week, we'll see the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And so to kind of set the stage for what's going to happen here... We need to see how the Jewish feasts that were already being celebrated are fulfilled. So, remember when we were going through the Gospel according to St. Luke, we mentioned how Pascha, that is the Passover, was fulfilled by Christ offering his life for the life of the world. And that's why we Orthodox Christians refer to Easter as Pascha. It's the new Passover, So in the same way that the Passover was celebrated, which is the Passover of the children of Israel from the death that they were experiencing in Egypt into the life of, after 40 years, Israel, um, Jerusalem rather, we saw Christ pass into death and raised from the dead, offering us the possibility of eternal life. In the same vein, we're going to see the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, which was an agricultural feast, but it was also a commemoration of the giving of the law to Moses from God. We're going to see that this feast as well is fulfilled and given the new Christian context. So that's why as Christians, when we hear Pentecost, we don't think of it as a Jewish feast Rather, we think about it as the birthday of the church, the the giving of the Holy Spirit. But before it was that celebration, we have this Jewish reality. So this is going to be another example of how Christ has fulfilled the law and the prophets. We don't see these feasts being dissolved in the same way that we're going to see the temple worship isn't going to be dissolved. Rather, They're filled to their brim, as that word fulfilled means. They're overflowing now because they've reached their full manifestation of how they were supposed to be all along. So with that preamble of mine out of the way, let's begin the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, starting with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound came from heaven like a rush of mighty wind, and it fell... It filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what do we see? The church, which as we talked about last week, is consisting of 120 people is located in the upper room. And suddenly, as they're all in this one place, we hear that there's a sound from heaven, like the rush of a mighty wind. And it fills all the house where they're sitting. We also hear a second description. So in verse 3, we hear that there appeared to them tongues of fire, which are distributed and rest on each of them. And after... This wind and fire, we hear that they're filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So first of all, what's happening here? In the description that St. Luke is using, he's calling us back to references to the Holy Spirit throughout the entire Old Testament. Often the Holy Spirit is associated with wind and with fire. A key example of The Holy Spirit being associated with fire is in the pillar of fire that leads the Israelites through the wilderness. There we see basically St. Luke citing his sources of who this person is, the person of the Holy Spirit. And we also know that there's this ecstatic wisdom that comes with the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that fuels the prophets. It's the Holy Spirit that has ultimately been directing all towards the fulfillment that has come in Christ. And now, as we're going to hear when St. Peter begins his speech, it's the same Holy Spirit that's going to dwell on all flesh. So before in the Old Testament, we saw that the Holy Spirit only dwelled within a select few. We heard that the Holy Spirit dwelt within kings, and sometimes that would only be momentary. And sometimes that would be throughout the whole of the reign. But we also heard that primarily the Holy Spirit would dwell in the prophets. That's what would give them this ecstatic knowledge of God. That's what would cause them to face threat of death when they go before the kings and say, hey, we're messing up, we need to get back on track. So ultimately, everything that was done by these mighty men of the Old Testament is fueled by the Holy Spirit. And yet, we might notice that even though we know their names throughout the vast majority of human history, these individuals were very few. And yet, now we see in the 120 that have been in this upper room together in one place that they are filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave the buffers So I think we need to also address the fact that even though the descriptors are being used, tell us that the Holy Spirit comes in like the rush of mighty wind and appears as if tongues of fire, we're not talking about literal wind or literal fire. In the same way that when we're talking about the theophany of Jesus, that was his baptism, when the spirit appeared in the form of a dove, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is a bird. It doesn't mean that that's how he reveals himself physically. Rather, whenever we hear these descriptors, we need to realize that the author or the person who's watching these events is trying to explain something that's unexplainable in the best way that they can. And we see with the association of these common characteristics of the Spirit throughout the Old Testament that St. Luke is falling into that same vein of what had come before. So he's not trying to come up with a brand new description of how the Spirit manifests himself. Rather, he's tying back to the tradition that already exists. And we'll get into the ecstatic speech, that's the speaking in tongues in a later section. But I think for now, we can move on to verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered, because each of them heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and wondered, saying... Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Edomites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, and Asia, Pergia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and the visitors from Rome, Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, said, they are filled with new wine. So what do we see here? We see that there's an outpouring of the church into the public sphere. And we hear that dwelling in Jerusalem at this time are Jews, developed men from every nation under heaven. So why is Jerusalem full again? Well, because of the Feast of Pentecost, the Jewish Feast of first fruits that is currently taking place. And so all of these pilgrims, because again, we need to remember that even though the Jews have been scattered into the diaspora, as it's known... They still have to come together for worship because the temple is the center of the religious tradition. So whenever major feasts would come up, it was customary for them to return to Jerusalem. In the same manner, we saw Jerusalem during the Passover was full. And that's why the crowd was so big when Jesus was being offered up in like manner. We see that Jerusalem is full here on Pentecost because they're here to offer the first fruits of their labor. And so we hear that there are devout men, Jews, from every nation under heaven. And they're bewildered when they hear the sound of the apostles and the disciples coming out and speaking about God and the saving acts of Christ in their native tongues. They highlight the reality that these men are Galileans, and yet how are they speaking in this tongue? And identifying the disciples as Galileans tells us in particular that these individuals are simple. It's kind of describing their appearance because Galilee wasn't a very noble place. It was full of simple workers, and we need to remember that the vast majority of the apostles are just simple laborers and fishermen. And yet, here they are speaking in the native tongues of all of those who are listening. And I think it's important here to kind of address what's happening with the speaking in tongues. Because what we see here isn't some contemporary Pentecostal understanding of ecstatic speech of angels. Rather, what we see is the Holy Spirit has given the disciples of the early church the ability to speak in the languages of those who are listening. So that way the message of Christ's resurrection can go out into all nations. And we see this further with the description of where all of these people are from. Because what this shows us is that the Jewish diaspora has gone out into all nations, And in the same manner, now that Christianity fulfills Judaism from the central location of Jerusalem, those who receive the word of Christ are going to be spread out into all of the nations and to the ends of the world. So what we see is that through these simple fishermen comes the glorious words of the risen Christ. And it's through these simple fishermen that we see the power of aligning our will with the will of God, because even though they weren't learned, even though they didn't have a strict academic background, rather they spent all of this time listening to Jesus and traveling with him, now that the Spirit has descended upon them, the Spirit is giving them exactly what they need to carry out what they're being called to do. And right now what that is, is to preach the gospel. And again, gospel, it means good news within the victory uh, context, so a military context of victory. So when we hear the word Evangelion, gospel, what that's calling our attention to is the victory of Christ over his enemies. And who are Christ's enemies? Well, Christ's enemies... sin and death. So when Christ tramples down death by itself, well, that's the gospel message. The gospel message is that death no longer has any grip over us. And this is the message that the early church is now preaching to the multitude who's listening of the mighty works of God that have taken place in this time. And we hear that all are amazed and perplexed saying to one another, What does this mean? So they're listening as the multitude. They're perplexed by the fact that these simple fishermen are speaking in their native tongues and they're comprehending what it is that they're saying, as well as the profound works of God that are being professed. But then we hear in verse 13 that there's still some who don't believe. They say that these men are filled with new wine. And... This critique kind of has multiple dimensions to it. So, yeah, we can see this and kind of say, okay, great. They're just saying these guys are drunk. But if we understand the context of where we are, as we're going to see when Peter begins his speech, it's nine in the morning. And so Peter's going to say, it's only the third hour of the day. These men aren't drunk, as you say. But when we see that they're drunk on new wine or filled with new wine, well, we need to also remember where that would have come from. Again, we're in this context of the Pentecost, the celebration of the first fruits, and it's customary for the celebration of the first fruits to bring a sacrifice of the first fruits of your harvest to be offered. So basically, what they're being accused of here is not only being drunk, but being drunk on the sacrifice that they were meant to offer to God. So this is a deeper accusation than we may see on the surface. So we're going to carry on now through St. Peter's speech, but we need to remember what's happening here in this ecstatic speech and those who are listening receiving this glad tidings because there's another hyperlink that's taking place here in the description of all of these people coming from all of these different nations. Because now we see the Holy Spirit has come. And it's going to be through the Holy Spirit and through these strange languages that the apostles are speaking that the church will be united. And the hyperlink, if you will, that's being referred to here is the Tower of Babel event that happens within Genesis? So, a little refresher of what happens there humanity tries to build a tower to reach God. And so, God confuses their speech so that way they can no longer work together to build said tower. And it's from this confusing of languages that they're then scattered throughout the rest of the world because they no longer are on the same page with each other. They can no longer understand each other. What we see here in the Pentecost account is the fulfillment of what had happened then. Because when God had used language to confuse people, now it's through this use of language that he is intervening and allowing for overall unity. So, similar to how language scattered initially, because there was misunderstanding, and through this misunderstanding, the people could no longer work together, rather they kind of sectioned off into their own groups of people of like speech, we see now that the Spirit has ascended upon all flesh, and in doing so, we see this reunion that's taking place. I think this is an important note to realize, well, what is the purpose of language? Well, the purpose of language is to articulate whatever it is we're trying to get across. As we can hear from me, something I do pretty poorly. But the key with language is for this unity, this unity of message. So we can't look at language or at least this ecstatic speech of the apostles as being something that's divisive. St. Paul in his letters will address this because there are plenty of groups where you see people within the first century of the church speaking in this ecstatic way. And he'll say that this is forbidden within the context of the church unless there's someone to be able to translate that speech for others to listen. So the purpose of speech within this context is to allow for individuals to be welcomed in to the glory of God, to experience the truth of what has happened. So it's not to divide, but rather it's to unite. So we're going to see this as a continued motif within... St. Peter's address of the crowd that we're about to go into. And before we move into St. Peter's sermon, I think we need to look at the overall context of what he's saying. So you've heard me say over and over again that we're supposed to read the Old Testament and the whole of the scriptures through the light of the new. And... Oftentimes, I think I say that and I take for granted that I have some rough understanding of what that means, but I don't do a good job at trying to articulate exactly what that means in the practical sense. St. Peter, in his sermon here, will do a massive thorough job of showing us what that reality looks like, how it is to read the Old Testament in the light of the new. So, with all that out of the way, let's move on to the 14th verse of the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Ye, and on my maids, manservants and my maidservants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great manifest day. And it shall be that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So, With the first half of St. Peter's speech, what do we see? Well, we see him address the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. So this message, as he's saying the stage, is for all. And he says, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. So again, we see this motif of calling attention, which we've seen within Christ's speeches. And in the 15th verse we see St. Peter's response to the critique in the 13th verse. Because in the 13th verse, we heard people mocking and saying that they're filled with new wine. Remember, they're misusing the offering that they're supposed to be presenting to the Lord. And yet, St. Peter doesn't spend a lot of time trying to defend them. Rather, he just plainly says... For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. We might say, well, this seems like a pretty weak defense. Why is he leaving it at that? But we see in his continuation to the words of the prophet Joel that defending the early church from people who are saying that they're drunk isn't his motivation right now. It isn't the number one priority. Yes, he makes this statement, and we can take it as we wish, but the defense of the brethren, the defense of the early church, is not his primary motivation. Rather, his primary motivation is to articulate to the people what has just happened, what's going on here. And using the words of the prophet Joel, and the exact reference that we see here is, Joel chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we see Peter talk about the shift in history that has now taken place with the descent of the Holy Spirit. So we hear in verse 17, In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So In this reference to the last days, what do we see? Well, oftentimes we hear various Christian groups looking for this end time, looking for this dramatic coming calamity that's going to mark the end of the world. And what St. Peter is telling us through the words of the Prophet Joel is that that time is here. That time has been here for us, chronologically speaking, for 2,000 years and that's because as we'll hear in the words of St. Paul the Christians are to be in this age but not of this age when we've been baptized into Christ we have put on Christ and as we talked about throughout St. Luke's gospel account all who come into contact with Christ are coming in contact with the messianic age that's why there's this transfigurative effect that happens when Christ comes into contact with illness, when Christ comes into contact with possession. It's because he is literally transfiguring it to its intended state, its fulfilled state. And if that's the case, well, then that's our icon of what the Messianic Age looks like. The Messianic Age is an age fulfilled and transfigured, transformed, in Christ. Because when Christ enters into humanity, when he takes flesh, what happens? Well, it's transfigured. It's transformed. Because he lived a full life as we do. Yes, we all experience the reality of sin, which is death and suffering and all of these various factors. But these factors are distortions. Because if we go all the way back to Genesis, we see that that's not how the world was intended to be. And yet, through our missing of the mark, because again, remember, sin isn't a stain or this weight that we're carrying on us. Rather, it's a deviation from our target. And what's our target as Christians? Well, our target that we're aiming for is life in Christ life in full participation in the Messianic kingdom. And so through this declaration of Peter, through the words of the prophet Joel, we see that these days have taken place. And the marker of this reality is that God's spirit has now descended upon all flesh. That's men and women alike, young and old. And the significance in this we're going to address in one second, because we hear ye, here in verse 18, that is, ye and on my manservants and my maidservants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So regardless of age or sex, we see that the spirit is equally distributed on all. And this is a reality that we saw with the description of the Spirit descending upon the Church in the forms of of, tongues of fire. Because even though the Spirit isn't divided, we see an equal share in the Spirit being offered to all, regardless of their background. And in this reference to women, manservants, and maidservants, we need to remember that these individuals, besides children and infants, are seen as the lowest class within society. Slaves and women had no rights within the first century context. And yet, here through the words of Joel, what do we see? We see that in the eyes of God, all of humanity is elevated. All of humanity is offered this ecstatic gift of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that dwells in each and every one of us and guides us towards Christ. And we hear in verse 19, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the days of the Lord comes, the great and manifest days. And I shall be, it shall be, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what do we see in these three verses? Well, we see that the wonders in the heaven and the signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire, vapor, and smoke, well, what's that an association of? What's well, an association with the mighty acts that we're going to see throughout the rest of this narrative? And we need to remember, well, what are these mighty acts rooted in? well, these mighty acts are going to be rooted in the Holy Spirit. Nothing that we see the apostles and the early church do is rooted in their own action. It's not of themselves that they're going to be able to do healings and whatnot. Rather, it's through their manifestation of Christ, by aligning their will with his, And allowing the guidance of the Holy Spirit to work through them. That all of these things will be made possible. And yet, there's also going to be this dramatic effect. Because we're going to continue to see the same things that have occurred in this fallen age. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. So, we'll see calamities in the sky. And we'll also continue to see warfare as is marked with the moon will be turned into blood. These are realities of this fallen age. We've spoken of this in prior sections of St. Luke's Gospel because over and over again we see these cycles of history continue. Yet, if we remember the words of St. Paul that I quoted earlier that we're in this age but not of this age, then what's our hope? Where shall our salvation come from? Well, it shall come to all those who call upon the Lord. It's going to only be through our devotion to God that we'll be able to find our way through all of this mess. Because, again, even though Christ has come, well, that means that this age, which is lost, this age ruled by sin and death, is going to continue to lash out you're gonna continue to see the realities of fallen creation manifest themselves over and over again. Yet we have an ultimate hope. And that ultimate hope is rooted in the fact that God has condescended, lowering himself, taking flesh, so that way we can have the hope of eternal life in him. And we hear, I was trying to remember if we kept going through verse 22, we did. We hear Peter pick up after these words of Joel and say, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So, we see St. Peter reminding those who are listening of everything that has transpired over Jesus' three-year ministry. He's done mighty wonders and works and signs, which God did through him. So we can't be confused here because oftentimes we can read some of these passages with an ax and we can get an understanding that Christ is... Some ways separate from the Father, in some ways that He's divided. And yet, it's moments like this that we need to remember the overall context of the Scriptures. We don't read the Scriptures as individual books without also taking account of the whole of the Scriptures. So, in the same way that we'll read a little bit later on, that God raised this Jesus up from the dead. We'll hear in other books of the Gospels that Christ raised himself up, or that the Spirit of God raised Christ up. And we might look at these descriptions as contradictory, and yet what they're re- rather showing us is the nuance with which the Holy Spirit work, the Holy Trinity rather, works within himself. So we try to read the scriptures in this prescriptive manner, and we try to look at various aspects of them and say, well, no, that's a contradiction of this. But if we understand the broader context of not only what's happening within each of these books, but also what's happening within the scriptures as a whole, we'll see where our theology comes from. We'll see this meta reality that we're being directed towards. So when we hear that these mighty works and signs, which God did through Jesus in your midst, we need to also remember the relationship between Jesus, the son and the father Because again, throughout Jesus entire ministry, he has been pointing all of us to the father, to the kingdom of the father. In fact, within the Lord's Prayer, where we proclaim, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, we heard that we are able to refer to God as our Father through Christ. So when Jesus teaches us how to pray and uses these words, well, what is that telling us? Well, it's telling us through him, we are children of God. If we go all the way back to the genealogy of Christ back in the second chapter of St. Luke's Gospel, well, what did we see? We saw this genealogy that stretched all the way back to Adam, the son of God. So it's showing us that there's this through line. We are the children of God, but we are also made the children of God through his Christ. So whenever we're looking at these various relationships in the way that Christ relates to the Father or we relate to God through him, we need to understand these nuances and we need to meditate upon them so that way we can try to grasp really what's going on. Because I think sometimes, myself included, we can sit here and read through these texts, make quick assumptions as to what's happening and just blur over all of this without seeing the deeper context of what's happening. But this is just a reminder that as we're reading through the scriptures, maybe we need to take more time with certain verses and certain words to see what it is that's actually happening here. And so in verse 23, kind of continuing this, we heard that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed the hands of lawless men. So what's Peter saying here? He's saying that even though all those listening are responsible for the crucifixion of Christ, even this was part of the definite plan in foreknowledge of God. So death, we can look at as this ultimate end. Why? Because, well, when we die, we perceive ourselves no longer to exist. There's a separation from the animation of the human being, and we decompose. And so when people are hearing this, well, there's this definitive end when they hear that Jesus has died, that they have killed them. And this can leave those who are listening feeling hopeless because, well, okay, we killed Jesus, and now what? But we hear that God raised him up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And we also heard, again back in verse 23, that even though Jesus was killed by lawless men, well, even this was part of God's divine plan for salvation. And these same people who offered up Jesus, who said, crucify him, crucify him, 50 days prior, these same people are now offered the opportunity of eternal life in him. Because God has raised him from the dead, and the bonds of death that were once held on us are now dissolved. So moving on to verse 25, we're going to go into the second half of St. Peter's speech. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will dwell in hope, for thou will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let thy Holy One see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou wilt make me full of gladness and with thy presence. Brethren, I may say to you confidently of the patriarch David that he has both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would not see, would, not set, one of, would set one of his descendants upon his throne, he foretooth and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies a stool for your feet. Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So in picking up from where St. Peter left off, we hear him first quoting the prophet Joel, and now he quotes the prophet King David. And so... We see a direct quotation of in the Septuagint, Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And so in the words of David, St. Peter says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will dwell in hope. And then we hear in verse 27, For thou wilt not abandon thy soul to Hades, nor let thy holy one see corruption. So, what's happening here? Well, here's an example of a classic double meaning that you see in the Old Testament. Because, as we remember, Christ just means anointed one. So, David is a Christ, he is a Christ of God. He does not have the title of the Christ of God. However, he is an example of a Christ, of a messianic figure, of a Savior. And yet, what do we see? We see here that in faith, he sees the Lord always before him. For he's at his right hand that he may not be shaken. And his heart is glad and his tongue rejoices. So through his prophetic words, we see this rejoicing. And he says that his flesh will dwell in hope. And the reason for this is that he has this belief that God will not abandon his soul to Hades. That is, to death. Because again, all Hades means is it's the underworld. It's death. And contextually speaking, where this tradition of Hades comes from, well, let's think practically of where a body goes after we die. Well, there's this tradition of burying bodies. So, that's where this association with Hades and death comes from. So, there's this belief that David's soul will not be abandoned to Hades. And in this title, Holy One, where we see, Nor let thy Holy One see corruption. Now we see the prophetic of words of David directing us towards Jesus, the ultimate Christ of God. Because we hear in verse 28, that was made known to me the ways of life that will make me full of gladness with thy presence. Well, what is the presence of God? Well, the presence of God is our ultimate experience of life. When we've talked about the second coming back in prior sections, well, what have we expressed this as? Well, it's the parousia. And the parousia literally means the presence of Christ. So when Christ comes again, what that means is his presence will be directly known by the whole of humanity. You can no longer hide from him. You can no longer kind of blind yourself to the reality of him. And so where will this ultimate life and hope that David is talking of come from? Well, It will be the gladness that's experienced being in the presence of the Lord. And so we see in verse 29, Peter carries on again and says, brethren, so we see this filial regard to the people who are listening. We need to also highlight here the compassion with which Peter has been treating the Jews who are listening to this speech, because even though we see him speaking the truth in reference to this Jesus who he says, you have offered in the unrighteous hands, he's continuing to refer to them as fellow Jews, as brethren. He's giving them, as we're going to see, an off-ramp that way. They can participate in the glory that is being offered to all. So I think it's important for us to just quickly address that because When we see St. Peter preaching in this way, this kind of gives us a glimpse into how we're called to preach the gospel in our life. We're not called to go around and condemn people and say, okay, you've done these bad things, and now I'm cutting off an opportunity for you to be able to succeed, to be able to have a life in Christ. Rather, what we see in the words of St. Peter and we'll later see in the response of the multitude, is that he's continuing to give them an off-ramp. He's continuing to speak the truth, to show them where they've missed the mark, but to give them an opportunity to be able to repent. So whenever we start judging people and we find ourselves making factual statements of where people are missing the mark and yet not offering people a way of repentance, not offering people a way to get from under the weight that they're under, we need to take a step back because we need to ask ourselves, well, what is the fruit that will be born from our speech? Yeah, maybe we'll feel good for a moment in condemning someone else, but are we just leaving them down the path of further hopelessness when we say, oh, you've really missed the mark, That sucks. That's it. Or are we just laying on them burdens that are too heavy for them to bear? I digress. Moving on, we see that Peter refers to the patriarch David. So when he's speaking to the brethren, that is his fellow Jews who are listening to them, he says the patriarch David that both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day. So he's confidently saying that David is not speaking of himself in this prophecy from Psalm 16, 8 to 11. Because rather we hear the prophet, in his knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would not set one one of his descendants, that he would, read that wrong both times, that he would set one of his descendants upon this throne. So, what do we see here? We see a quotation of Psalm 132, verse 11. And within that Psalm, we see a promise from God that he will seat one of David's descendants upon the throne of David. Well, this is again a direct tie to Jesus, because Jesus is of the lineage of, of David, He's born within the line of David. And so we see that Peter continues to say that he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ when he said this. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So within that statement, we see another quotation, a rearticulation, if you will, of Psalm 16, verse 10. This Christ, this Jesus, who has died, has now been resurrected. He's not been abandoned to Hades, and his flesh has not seen corruption. The reason for this is God raised him. And of that, we, that is the apostles and the church, are now paying witness. And here we see another double meaning, because through Christ raising himself from the dead, being raised from the dead, we see that the hope that David speaks of is also for him. Because in the same manner that God would not let his Christ fall into decay within the grave and see corruption, Christ has raised up all those who were sleeping in the grave. He's trampled down death by itself, offering those in the grave the possibility of eternal life in him. So even though we hear David say all these hopeful words and we can initially read them as pertaining to himself, and yet St. Peter here is telling us they were referring to Jesus, the Christ, we can also understand that these words still apply to David because through Christ... David is raised. In fact, when we look at the icon of the resurrection, who do we see as those dwelling in the presence of the Lord? We see John the Baptist. We see Adam and Eve being pulled out of the grave, representing the whole of humanity, both male and female. But we also see David, along with Abel and many other people from the Old Testament, standing there in the presence of the Lord, showing that, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, as we talked about in St. Luke's Gospel. For all are offered eternal life in him. And because of this reality, well, what do we hear? That Christ has risen. We hear that he, God has exalted from on high. And we have now received the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has now been poured out upon all those that the multitude are hearing. And St. Peter continues to quote David to show what all this means and how all this came together by quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. Because we hear in Psalm 110, verse 1 The Lord said to my Lord, Sit my right hand till I make thy enemies. The stool of thy feet. And here to close out his sermon, we hear St. Peter tell us, Let the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God has made him, as Jesus, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. And these terms, Lord and Christ, are used here as technical terms, because Kyrios, Lord, is the name of God within the Old Testament. So what we see here is a direct identification that Jesus is one with the Father, and this title of Christ now gains this brand new context. Because as we talked about throughout St. Luke's Gospel narrative, Christ was kind of thrown around here and there. Because again, a Christ, a Messiah, was only an anointed Savior of God. David, as we mentioned earlier, was also a Messiah, was also a Christ. And yet, in Jesus, the Christ, we see that this title is transfigured. We see that this title is transformed. And even though this Jesus, whom you, that is those who are listening had crucified, was dead and sleeping in the grave... Even this was part of God's divine plan for salvation. Because it's through Christ entering into death, that death itself is dissolved, is trampled down by itself. And those in the grave, including David and all those of the Old Testament, and all of us, are granted the possibility of eternal life. So moving on to verse 27. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, And said to Peter, and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, and to your children, and to all that are far off, every one whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other words, and exhorted them, saying, Save yourself for this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and worship to the breaking of the bread and the prayer. So, again, what we see after these words of Peter is that the people are cut to the heart, those who are willing to receive these words. And they're so touched by the words that they're hearing coming out of the apostles' mouths that they ask them, what shall we do? And we see here that those who are asking this question are, again, referring to the apostles in this familiar way. They refer to them as brethren in the same way that Peter, in the prior section, had referred to them as brethren. So although they've missed the mark, although they share responsibility in the death of Jesus, in hearing the words of the apostles, they ask, what is it that they're going to do? And so Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. So, in this statement, what do we see? We see a similar motif to the words of St. John the Baptist in the wilderness. Because St. John the Baptist offered a baptism of repentance. But we need to remember the context of St. John's baptism. St. John's baptism was a baptism of preparation. Preparation for the remission of sins. In anticipation of the coming Christ. And now that Christ has come, what do we see? Well, we see that... Baptism is in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, this isn't a prescription of how baptism is supposed to work. This isn't the systematic that St. Luke is presenting to us. Rather, he's showing us the point. And that point is that repentance and forgiveness of sins is rooted in the saving acts of Christ, So as the ritual washing of baptism takes place, where an individual dies, that is symbolically by descending into water, which symbolizes chaos and comes up anew, what we see is that the death and rebirth that has taken place is a death to the motif of this age, the reality of this age, which is ruled by sin and death, and rebirth in the messianic kingdom. In the Messianic Age. And after this rebirth takes place, what are we told? You shall receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So, in the same manner that we Orthodox Christians have the seal of the Spirit given to us within Holy Chrismation, followed immediately after baptism, we see that the Spirit dwells within all those who are baptized. So the preparation is still taking place, but the preparation is transfigured in Christ. This is the significance of Jesus being baptized way back in the third chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. Because Jesus didn't have to be baptized. Jesus is sinless. And yet, in his entering into the water through the rite of baptism, what do we see? Well, the baptism of John that was initially in anticipation of Jesus has now been fulfilled. And our Christian version of baptism now has this deeper, more profound meaning. And in like manner, now that Christ has risen from the dead and ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father, what do we see? Well, through baptism, there's also this bestowing upon us of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why the Holy Spirit descends after baptism is because through baptism we see this radical shift. And the shift indicates that the individual who's being baptized and chrismated has now decided to live a new life. Now, this doesn't mean that every single time we sin after the fact, we need to be baptized. Because baptism is a once and for all act. That's why we don't practice rebaptism, because we believe that there's this distinct characteristic associated with the Holy Spirit that happens through baptism. And so, what do we see within our tradition whenever we sin? Well, we don't see rebaptism. Rather, we see repentance within the context of the sacrament of confession. And what confession is, Our way, it is our way of offering up that which we've done, seeking the guidance of a priest, and getting back on track. And the reason why you need a priest there isn't because he's some conduit to God, but rather because we're all created in the image of God, and the priest holds a distinct role within that creation, as a minister. And so when we confess our sins in the presence of another human being who is also created in the image of God, well, what do we see? Well, when your spiritual father is looking at you as you're confessing your sins, you're seeing Christ looking right back at you through that divine image. And we might be asking ourselves with confession now that we're on this tangent, well, why can't I just go and confess my sins to God in private? Why do I need another person in front of me? Well, the reason for that is it raises the stakes. If we're making an intellectual offering kind of flippantly, well, there's nothing that can hold us accountable. And in fact, we see that confession is done within the context of a relationship because you don't really, within our tradition, go around confessing to random clergy. Rather, you have a spiritual father, ideally, and you're continually building a relationship with them. And the reason for this is because that individual, that priest, is helping you stay on track, is helping you go down this path. I digress. We can continue to talk about confession for a while. But the importance that we see going back to the text is that baptism is now fulfilled in Christ. And through this fulfillment, we see that the Spirit now dwells within each of us. And this promise is not only to those who are there in this moment, but we see that this promise is to their children and to all others throughout the world. And so there's this universality to the promise of the Holy Spirit. All are called to a life in Christ. All are called to live a life devoted to God. All are offered the Holy Spirit as the prophet Joel told us. And in hearing these words of the Apostles, what do we hear? Well, we hear that those who received these words were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls to the church. And then, what did they do? Well, we're going to see in this final section a brief summary of what the early church looked like, because... They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. So what does that mean? Well, that means that they're working together as one accord in fellowship. And they're also devoting themselves to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. What is the breaking of the bread? Well, the breaking of the bread, again, is the way that Christ makes his presence manifest to the church. I can ramble on and on about that again, but for a better refresher, you can go back to the last chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. Because in the last chapter of St. Luke's Gospel, what did we hear? Well, the way that the presence of Christ will be known to his church is through the Eucharist, through the breaking of the bread. And it's through the prayers that is the practice of still temple worship that we see the church as one is devoting themselves to the Lord. So moving on to the final section of this week's chapter, with verse 43. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So within the summary that we see of the early church, well, what do we see initially? Well, we see that fear came upon every soul. And what this phrase is indicating to us is that the church is in the presence of the Lord. And the reason why we can ascertain that from the reference to fear is because as we see throughout the entirety of the old Testament, whenever individuals come into the presence of the Lord or some angelic being, what happens? Well, the initial reaction that they have is a fear response. And the reason for that is they're fully comprehending something which is beyond their comprehension. And so it's from the fear that came upon every soul that we see they devote themselves to a love for the Lord. because again, through Jesus Christ, we've seen that the Lord, even though He's unknowable, even though God is so much beyond us, has now condescended to our level. He's taken flesh in the form of a servant, so we can understand him in our own way and ultimately enter into a relationship with him. Because through the incarnation of Christ, we see that God is no longer some abstract principle up in the sky somewhere detached from humanity. Rather, he enters into our existence. And it's through that entering into all aspects of human life even sin and death that the whole of our human experience is transfigured and when we live a life in him we have the possibility of having our experience of life transfigured as well this is the belief that the early church had and this is what allowed for the apostles to do all these mighty signs and wonders because these mighty signs and wonders aren't of their own doing. Rather, they're guided by the saving acts of the Spirit who is working through them, who is guiding them. And we hear that all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they sold their positions and goods and distributed them all as any had need. So I think it's important here to look at the context of what's happening. We can often focus on the goods, that is the possessions that these people have and now have given away. They see that they hold everything in common, but this holding in common of possessions doesn't stem from some form of hierarchy which is enforcing this, as you'd see within a communist form of government. Because the problem with any form of government especially when you see some form of compulsion to share in goods, is that there needs to be a human being in charge of enforcing that. And we know how fragile we are. We know how prone to sin human beings are. So with time, eventually, you'll have a bad egg. You'll have someone who lords their authority over others. And so when we see the church sharing and all of their possessions, and distributing what they have in excess to those who have need. What we see is the motif that's already played out over and over again in St. Luke's Gospel, articulated it again of all being brought to the same status within Christ. They're not compelled to do this; rather, it is their belief in the saving acts of Christ that are causing them to live as one, and to elevate those who are lowly, to bring up the infirm and those who do not have what they need. And the reason for this is because the church of the first century truly believed that everything that was given to them was a gift given to them from God. And in that belief, we see them now using everything that they have been given including the whole of their life, to his glory. So this is what's fueling the church and these actions. And we see that day by day, they're attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They partook of food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. So we see that temple worship continues because the prayer services that take place in the temple are directly rooted to the contemporary morning services of Vespers and evening services of Vesper. sorry, morning services of Orthros and evening services of Vespers that we celebrate today. In fact, our liturgical calendar that we have in the Orthodox church is directly connected to the Jewish liturgical calendar. And so this cycle still continued. We see the Christians of the first century still co-celebrating with their fellow Jews within the temple in prayer. And yet, what are we told? Well, we're told that the Eucharist takes place in their homes. It's in their homes that they participate in this Eucharistic breaking of the bread. And the reason for that is because this mystery of experiencing the presence of Christ is for the church, is for the illumined alone. And yet, we see that as they're being generous in heart and praising God, what does that lead to? Well, that leads to them having favor with all of the people. They're not praising men. They're not trying to flaunt themselves. Rather, they're lowering themselves. They're living this Christ-centered life as their Lord and Savior Had lived. And now that they're imaging him into the world, what do we see? Well, we see that there's favor within the eyes of the people. And that through this favor, the Lord is acting. God is acting. And in his saving acts, he's adding to their number day by day. And so salvation is now offered to all. And the possibility of participating within the salvation doesn't come from the Christians going around and chastising those around them. Rather, it comes from those around them seeing the radically different lives that these Christians are living and becoming so enamored with the self-sacrificial love that they're showing that they decide to follow along and be enveloped into the body of Christ as we know the church to be. As we're continuing to go through the Acts of the Apostles, it's important to look at the characteristics of the early church and what made them capable of carrying out this call. Because we've spent all of this time following Christ, who is the Son of God. And while we were doing that, it may be hard for us or difficult to see how do we apply all that he was telling us to do to our own life. Because if he's the son of God, well then he's capable of all of these things. He's sinless. And yet we're fallible. We experience sin. We miss the mark. So how can I directly relate to Christ? Well, here we see in the Acts of the Apostles we have our characters that we can map onto. We have fellow human beings who are fallible like we are, who are managing to live this life. It's the same example that we see within the lives of the saints, and it's for this reason that different individuals will have different relationships with various saints in their life. You'll resonate with other saints and you won't resonate with them. But at the end of the day, what we see from their example is a path for us to be able to carry out what we are called to do. And what we're called to do is to make Christ manifest in the world, to participate in self-sacrificial love because he has come and done so for us. And in doing so for us, By offering his life for the life of the world, what do we see? Well, now we have been offered the possibility of eternal life in him. So as we continue to go through the Acts of the Apostles, let's look at their example. So we can ask ourselves the question of how is it that God is calling us today to be participants in the saving acts of his church? So we can make his Christ manifest to those who don't know him, through our actions in the expression of his self-sacrificial love. Because it's through expressing the self-sacrificial love that's embodied ultimately in Christ that we give those who are living in darkness an example of another way to live. So thank you all for listening to this session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. Until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to the session of our St. John the Baptist Bible Study, Make His Path Straight. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming weeks, I invite you to see for yourself the depth of meaning that they can present to us all. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for this Bible study, links can be found in the description below. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in this Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what what it is to participate in these texts and live the life that Christ calls us to live through the scriptures. I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End every Sunday for Orthros starting at 8.30 a.m. and Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, I've also linked in the bio the Directory of Greek Orthodox Churches as a resource so that you can find an Orthodox Church near you. As always, thank you for listening and may St. John the Forerunner continue to give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight. That's